Hello and welcome. I'm Carolyn and you're listening to Behind Bars. Today I'll be talking about the life and death of Tina Fontaine. You may have heard of her. Her death started lots of protests in Canada about racial prejudice in the court system and problems with other youth services in Manitoba. Tina Fontaine was born on the 1st of January 1999. New Year's must be quite a nice birthday when you're older. You can have a massive party the night before and you'll always be up till at least midnight. Unfortunately, Tina wouldn't make it to that age, but I'll get to that later. When she was very young, she and her parents were in and out of child and family services, also known as CFS. CFS is an organisation, a bit like social services, which helps, or at least is meant to help, vulnerable children who are suffering abuse or neglect, and families who live in poor and or dangerous areas. There was a fair amount of abuse going on inside the family. Details are still coming to light about it all to this day. Neither of the parents were abusive towards Tina, but there have been some rumours of her father and mother harming each other. Even Tina's great-aunt told the media that the family, quote, was doomed from the beginning. Nothing solid facts at the moment, though. A lot of research is still going on, even now. When Tina was a young girl, she grew up with her mum and her dad. However, by 2004, her mother, Valentina Duck, had stopped living with her. I can't find a definite reason why this happened, but most sources say it was decided Valentina wasn't safe around young children. When she was five years old, Tina's great-aunt, who she knew as Grandma, started helping her father to raise her. In 2011, disaster struck. Tina's father, Eugene Fontaine, was beaten to death by two men. Shockingly, they only had to serve nine years each. If I'm doing the maths right, they're already two-thirds through their small sentence. What makes their sentence even more ridiculous is one of the killers already had a criminal background. He was a repeat offender, yet a judge still thought he could be rehabilitated after only nine years. I'm not the only one who thinks this. One of Eugene's friends told the media, quote, I just feel when you kill somebody, you should get more time than ten years. One of the only good things which happened in 2011 was that Tina's estranged mother reached out to her. Tina started to visit her in Winnipeg. Her family were very upset when they heard about Eugene's murder, as you'd expect. In 2011, victim services should have started getting involved. Not one single person from the organisation ever met Tina. She should have at least been given some grief counselling sessions after her father's death, but the system failed her. Everything started going downhill from here. Tina started skipping school a lot. In fact, she wasn't there more times than she was. Somehow, her school never seemed to notice. Maybe they thought one less child was one less problem for them. Although she still lived with her grandparents, she was barely there, and after her death it was discovered she was being sexually exploited by several older men. She had a boyfriend, Cody Mason, who was three years older than her. He was one of the few people not taking advantage of her. Soon after her father's death, Tina started taking marijuana and cocaine to help ease the pain. Just think, all the... All of this could have been avoided if a professional had just done their job and visited her. When she was involved with CFS again in her teen years, she was recommended for plenty of counselling sessions, but never received one. In early summer 2014, on a trip to her mother in Winnipeg, Tina met a man called Raymond Cormier. She was a vulnerable 15-year-old, possibly with undiagnosed mental conditions. He was a 52-year-old man with an extensive criminal background. It wasn't long before he was abusing her every chance he got. 
A witness said she saw him groping her in public and saying, quote, just do me. He'd also told some of his friends he was sleeping with her. She was already being abused by other old men. Cormier decided to get closer with her by dealing her a drug called gabapentin. He was normally high on meth or crack. I guess he figured it wouldn't hurt if she was high too. It may have been easier for him to manipulate her like this. Some people have also theorised that he got her to use the drug so on the day she died he could give her an overdose without her realising. There wasn't any found in her blood when the autopsy was performed, but as you'll soon find out in a minute, her body was in pretty bad shape when the coroners got it. Even if it wasn't, gabapentin's quite hard to test for, and traces could have easily been missed during the autopsy. In early August 2014, Tina disappeared for longer than usual. Sure, she wasn't home a lot, but she'd at least come back in the evening. Her grandma even checked with Tina's biological mother, but she hadn't shown up there either. On the 9th of August, she was reported missing. Over the next few weeks, witnesses started coming forward, saying they'd seen a girl matching Tina's description, arguing loudly with an older man in the middle of the street, three days before she was reported missing. This man was, of course, Raymond Cormier. One of the witnesses, a woman called Sarah Holland, claimed to have heard some of their argument. She testified that at one point, Tina was threatening to call the police about a truck Cormier had stolen. At another point, Sarah said Tina seemed angry at him because he'd sold her bike for more drugs. Cormier told the police the story he still sticks by today. He said he'd argued with Tina briefly, but he'd left her at the end of the street and never saw her again. He also told the police the argument hadn't been about illegal activity, like the witnesses claimed. He told them Tina had just revealed her age to him. He claimed he didn't know she was underage and was furious that she meant he was technically a paedophile. About a week later, Tina's corpse was discovered. All hope was gone. She was found tied up in a duvet, along with some heavy rocks, and had clearly been in the river a long time before she'd washed up. By the time she was found, she only weighed 72 pounds. Because she'd been in the river for such a long time, most DNA evidence, if there was any to begin with, was destroyed. Her body was in very bad condition when it was found, like I mentioned earlier, so it was hard for them to do many tests on it during the autopsy. The police did briefly investigate the duvet, who owned one or if it was Tina's, things like that. Cormier had owned one of these duvets, but there were another 8,000 of them owned in Winnipeg alone. There was almost no forensic evidence in this case. In an attempt to gain more evidence, police launched an undercover operation, which they called Project Sticks. Some of the things he said on the recordings were condemning in themselves. When he was in an argument, he was recorded shouting, there was a little girl, quote, in a grave someplace, screaming at me to finish the job. And guess what? I finished the job. He also told an o- undercover officer, quote, there are three rules to crime, deny, deny, deny. Eventually, Cormier was charged with second-degree murder. His trial was in February 2018. There wasn't much forensic evidence, but no one else could have done it. He had means, motive, no alibi, witnesses against him. But, to everyone's shock, the jury found him not guilty. People were furious. Tina's life in itself made the problems with the system loud and clear. The fact she wouldn't even get justice was what tipped people over the edge. So, the protests began. Most of them centred around alleged racism and even genocide of the leaders of Manitoba, 
since Tina was an Indigenous or Native Canadian. She was overlooked by the system, and lots of people believe this was because powerful Canadians are prejudiced against Indigenous people. I find it hard to disagree, especially if you consider some of the statistics produced by activists. Did you know that Indigenous women are seven times more likely to be murdered than non-Indigenous women? One activist told the world, quote, They're trying to get rid of us and our culture. The activists and others who protested are really inspirational. Not to sound cheesy, but they really showed how you can make a difference and change the world. I'm glad something good came out of Tina's story. Just over a year ago, in March 2019, Daphne Penrose wrote and published a report about the changes that would be made to the systems and organisations that failed Tina Fontaine. Penrose is the Manitoba advocate for children and youth, by the way, so these changes will actually happen. Some of them will take longer than others, but thanks to the investigation into all of these organisations, they are gradually happening. These changes include CFS and victim services staff to attend meetings about being culturally aware and more child-centred. The report ordered, quote, victim services to address the quality control measures they were lacking in their interactions with Tina and her family. Penrose explained how, quote, if the focus of our resources and interventions keep our eyes locked on the results of trauma, then we will ignore the reasons that cause trauma, and our province will continue to see ballooning, ballooning numbers of youth involved in child and family services. Finally, she concluded saying, quote, as we carry on in Tina's memory, these changes cannot wait. That sums it up very nicely. These changes cannot and will not wait. In fact, they're happening right now. That was the case of Tina Fontaine and Raymond Cormier. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I found it very interesting. Don't forget to email behindbarsthepod at yahoo.com if you have any feedback, comments or queries. Follow at behindbarsthepod on Instagram. Check the podcast description if you need help with spelling. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye.